Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We are studying through the Gospel of John, and uh, the Apostle John has introduced us to Jesus, the greatest human person who has ever lived in our universe, and John starts his story of Jesus with the pre-existence of Jesus. He goes all the way back before Bethlehem and tells us that Jesus existed as the Word of God, with God, He was God before God created anything at all. And John told us of God's willingness to become like us and take on our creatureliness and become like us so that uh, he might reveal himself to us. And so God, Jesus, humbles himself and becomes like us so that we might know what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Seriously, if you want to know what God is like, take your Bibles out, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you will know what God is like, because Jesus is the the image of the invisible God, and God is like Jesus, and so I would urge you to, to do that. John, the apostle, tells us of John the baptizer, who is a pre-witness to Jesus. He has come on the scene to prepare Israel for the coming of the new king, the King Jesus, King Jesus. And and so he's been pre-witnessing to the arrival of Jesus, preparing everybody for that. And uh, John has pointed Jesus out in the crowd and said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this morning, as we turn our attention back to John, we're going to begin to look at the actual ministry of Jesus. And so it begins, and this is Jesus. What we're going to see this morning in the text before us is that we are going to see Jesus beginning his, his own personal ministry team. Most of us have probably never heard of Edward Kimball. If you have heard of Edward Kimball, you heard of him in this this context. But Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher, and he was a Sunday school teacher of young teenage boys. And Edward Kimball really took his role as a Sunday school teacher very, very seriously. And and he didn't see his role. And to all you that teach the Bible, here's something for you to keep in mind. Kimball did not see his ministry just as coming on Sunday morning and and helping everyone understand what he had prepared. He saw his ministry, as it relates to Sunday school anyway, he saw his ministry as one of impacting the young men that were in his class. And so he personally went after those young men. When I say went after them, I simply mean that he went, he went to them to share Jesus with them so that he might reach them. He might explain to them who Jesus is. And there was one particular young boy that Kimball was interested in talking to, and so so I want to read you his own words later recounted by him in, in this visit to go see this young man. And, uh, and so Mr. Kimball says, and I quote, I started downtown to Holton's shoe store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go just then during business hours. I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy, that when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was, and when they learned, might taunt him and ask him if I was trying to make a good good boy out of him. 
While I was pondering over it all, I passed the store without noticing it. And then when I found out I'd gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over with at once. I found him in the back of the store, wrapping up shoes and paper and putting them on the shelf. I went up to him, I put my hand on his shoulder, and as, and as I leaned over, I placed my foot on a shoebox, and then I made my plea. And I feel it was a really very weak one. I, I don't know just what words I used, nor could, uh, could he tell me later. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted in return. That was all there was to it. I, I think... He said afterward that there were tears in my eyes. It seemed that the young man was just ready for the light that then broke upon him. For there at once, in the back of that store, shoe store in Boston, the future great evangelist gave himself and his life to Christ. Now, the young man that, that Edward Kimball went to see, and again, most of you may know this already, but the, the young man he went to see was a, a fellow by the name of Dwight Moody. And D.L. Moody gave his heart to the Lord Jesus, began to follow Jesus at that moment, and as we know, he became a great evangelist. But what we may not know is the progression that went from that moment. D.L. Moody would begin to preach, uh, and John Chapman would be in one of Moody's revival services, and Chapman would receive the Lord, and Chapman then would begin to preach his own, his own revival messages. And one of his messages, Billy Sunday, would respond to the invitation, and Billy Sunday, all of these men, heroes of our faith. These men would go on to become great evangelists of the gospel. And, D, and Billy Sunday, so he came forward, he began to preach in one of Billy's meetings. Mordecai Ham was present. And Mordecai, Mordecai Ham became a believer in the Lord Jesus. He also began to preach. And at one of his messages, Billy Graham was present. And Billy Graham would profess faith at one of Mordecai Ham's meetings. And then Billy Graham would don his pistachio-colored suits and his bright red ties. And he would start preaching in a tent in Hollywood, California, and the rest is known. He impacted our nation. All of this occurred because a follower of the Lord Jesus, who served as a Sunday school teacher, took his responsibility to introduce others to Jesus. He, he took it seriously. Our story picks up in John chapter 1, verse 35. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. And the text that we're going to be looking at is Jesus beginning to form his own team. And what's so neat about this team, as we'll see it here, even here in, these, in the inception, the forming of the team, you'll see it there. But then you'll, I, I want you to know that the reason why you're here today, if you are a follower of Jesus, it is because these men... These men passed on what they knew of Jesus to other men, who in turn passed it on to other faithful men, who in turn passed it on to other faithful men, who eventually passed it on to you, and you came to believe in the Lord Jesus. Now, in the verses, we're going to go through the end of the chapter this morning, and uh, as Jesus begins to form his team, there's going to be five disciples that we're going to see in the text. And so I've divided our, our study of these verses just by the names of the disciples. So first, the first two actually are a group, Andrew and the other disciple, verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and stay and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. 
Now, one day we find John speaking of Messiah in, in this kind of sense that somewhere out in Israel, he walks among you. The, the, the Messiah is here and he's out there walking among you. In John's, in John's recording of John the baptizer's account, we read that the next day John actually sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We talked about that last week. The text now continues and it says again the next day. So this could be the following day, but most likely it's not. Most likely it's the very same day that John saw Jesus, the, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the, the sin of the world. And it seems like that he must have leaned over to two of his disciples in verse 35, he must have leaned over to them and he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, uh, and these two disciples, they leave John's side at that point and they begin to follow Jesus. It seems pretty clear that this is exactly what John the baptizer wanted. He wanted them to follow Jesus. And can I say this to all of us here this morning who seek to mentor others, who seek to pour our lives into others who are following Jesus, this is our goal. This is what we desire. We, we don't desire for people to follow us. At least we shouldn't. Our goal should be to transfer people's allegiance from us, maybe as someone who is being instrumental in their lives. Our goal is to transfer their allegiance from us to the Lord Jesus. And that's what John the baptizer does with two of his disciples. Now, one of the two disciples we read of, his name is Andrew. We find that out in verse 40. Andrew's family lived in the city of Bethsaida, which is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, John chapter 1, verse 44. But later he would move to Capernaum, and there he and his brother Peter would start a business, evidently in partnership with two other men, John, uh, John and his uh, brother James. Now we know that the father of Andrew's father, Peter's father, was named Jonah. He's also called John, same derivative name, so which of those exactly he went by, not sure. Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. And that tells us a number of things about this man who would begin to follow Jesus. It tells us that he was a man of faith. Okay, by following John the Baptist, we know that, that Andrew was a man of faith. He was also looking for the Messiah. He was also looking for this new king. He was waiting for him because that was John's message. That's why he was following him. He was serious about God. He took his, he took his relationship with God seriously and was diligently seeking him. Andrew's always listed in the top four disciples when the lists are made. Andrew's always in the top four, along with his brother Peter and the two other men that I just mentioned, John and James. The Bible doesn't tell us how Andrew would die, but I thought I would tell you now. Andrew, who is the first mentioned and the first to begin to follow Jesus, he would die being hung on an X-shaped cross, not a T-shaped cross, but an X-shaped cross where he was lashed to that cross and it would take him at least two days to die. So he would suffer greatly in, in his death. Now the other disciple is, is not named here, but almost every Bible scholar will tell you that the other disciple is John the Apostle, the author of this letter, or the author of this gospel. You, you remember, he never mentions his name in the entire gospel. And, and so most Bible students, most Bible scholars say that it only makes sense that this person is John. For one, why would he not name him? Two, he and 
and he and Andrew are part business partners. They most likely have been friends uh, all of their life, maybe good friends. So that would explain why this other disciple is not is not named. If John is the second disciple, then everything that we said about Andrew would apply to John as well. He was a follower of John the baptizer. He was somebody who was serious about his relationship with God. He was looking for Messiah. Now, these two men, Andrew and John, and and even though it doesn't say so, I'm going to call them John from here on out, all right? So Andrew and John now are beginning to follow Jesus. And so they're walking behind him. They haven't approached him yet, but at some point Jesus turns around and he says, what do you seek? Now notice he doesn't say, whom do you seek? He says, what do you seek? And I've always thought this is sort of like an unfriendly question, maybe to put them off, but others others have said, and, and, and I tend to agree with them, having meditated on this for a while, that Jesus is trying to force them to verbalize what it is they desire from him. What, what, what you know, crystallize, why are you following me? And, uh, they, you know, they don't answer his question, what do you seek or whom do you seek? They don't answer any of that. They blurt out, Rabbi, where are you staying? Now, I've always, this is how I thought that was. So Jesus is walking down the street or down the whatever, the path, and they're, they're following him. And Jesus whips around and says, what are you guys seeking? And they're like caught off guard, right? And they go, oh, uh, uh, where are you staying, right? That's kind of how I always saw that. But I don't think that's the case anymore. In fact, most people say that uh, the question, Rabbi, where are you staying? Or teacher, where are you staying? Is more like, where, where are you? Can we come be with you? Can we come hang out with you? And that seems to be, uh, you know, their question is a polite way of saying, a safe face sort of way of saying, can we be your disciples? Now, uh, here's just a note, because we'll find this a lot in these verses. Notice that John the Apostle, he interprets a lot of things he says. Like, for instance, he says, rabbi means teacher. And you'll see that he interprets several other things in the text that we're going to look at this morning. But the reason he's doing that, he's writing 60 years after Jesus, maybe as many as 60 years. He's writing primarily to a Gentile audience in Ephesus, probably people who don't speak uh, Aramaic or, or Hebrew. And so he's interpreting certain words like rabbi, and, and he'll interpret some other things as you'll You'll see in, in just a moment. Uh, Jesus is, is amenable to, to their request, to their question, I mean, to their answer. Where, where are you staying? Uh, there's another time when somebody says, hey, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, hey, foxes have holes and birds have air. Uh, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That doesn't, he's not very inviting to that person, right? But in this particular case, he says to them, you know, come, come and see. He encourages them to come and, and see where he's staying. And the scripture goes on to tell us that they stay with him uh, that, that day or that evening. John identifies the time as the 10th hour. Here's just some, some study information for you in the futures you're reading. There was two ways of interpreting time back then. One of them would have been the Roman way. Another would have been the Jewish way. The Jewish way, the day starts at 6 o'clock in the morning. If, uh, if, if, if John is reckoning time according to the Jewish ca- uh, clock, the 10th hour would have been at 4 in the afternoon. The Roman clock started at midnight, so this would have been 10 in the morning. Most people think that John is using the Jewish time throughout the letter because of different things that we'll see later on in the, in the Gospel of John. So, in fact, some of your Bibles, you don't have to tell me, you don't have to say, some of your Bibles read 
uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, they've interpreted it for us. But literally it says the 10th, the 10th hour, which most likely was 4 p.m. And it seems that, that these guys would spend the night with Jesus. They would stay where he is staying that particular evening. First two disciples, Andrew and John. The next one is Simon Peter. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and follow him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. That's how we found out the first name, Andrew. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. There you have another translation. Uh, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now I assume this is the next day. And so Andrew has woke up, and the first thing that he does is he runs and gets his brother Simon. And he says, Simon, we have found the Messiah. And we've talked about this a lot, but hopefully it'll reinforce it. Messiah's Hebrew means anointed king. Christ is, is uh, Greek for the very same thing, meaning anointed king. Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, it's his title. Jesus is the anointed king. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed king. And, and so they are, you know, what, what Andrew says to Peter is, we have found the anointed king. See, all the Jews were looking for and waiting for this anointed king to come. For instance, Psalm 45, verse, verse 7 says, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with oil of gladness more than your companions. So they were looking for this special, supremely anointed king king that is coming. And so Andrew says to his brother, we found him. We found him. You've got to come and see. Now remember, John is writing. Can you tell me why is John writing this? Those of you that were here the very first Sunday. So that we might believe that Jesus is the anointed king. And he goes on to say, and the son of God. And that by believing in him, you might have Life, You might have the everlasting, eternal life. So that's his purpose. And, and so really, that's what Andrew does. That's Andrew's purpose in telling Peter that he might believe that he is the Messiah. Now, most likely, Andrew and Peter, neither one of them, and any of these men, they, they did not understand the Messiahship, the anointed kingship of Jesus in, in its reality. They understood it the way everybody would have understood it at that point. They're looking for an earthly king who will ride in, overthrow Rome, take control, take charge of the whole world. And let me say, Jesus will do that. He will indeed um, take over the world and rule the world. And they're looking for that now, but that's not why Jesus has come at this particular moment. When Jesus found the Samaritan woman, we'll see that story in a couple of chapters, but when Jesus finds the Samaritan woman, she says to him in the midst of their conversation, she says, I know when Messiah comes, when this anointed king comes, he, he's going to tell us everything. And indeed, that's what Jesus is seeking to do now with, uh, with Andrew and John and, and Simon. So Peter accompanies Andrew to meet Jesus. And when he comes to him, the first thing John records for us that Jesus says to Simon, it's Simon, your name is Simon, but I'm changing your name. Your name will no longer be Simon, which means the one who listens. But your name, isn't that, a, that seems like an out of character name for, for Peter, right? Who was always the first one to speak without evidently listening. But that was his name, the listening one. And uh, Jesus changes his name. And he says, from now on, your name is going to be Simon. Cephas. Now, Cephas is Aramaic. Peter is Greek. They both mean the same thing. They mean stone or rock. 
It's, uh, it's not recorded that Jesus called Peter or any of the other disciples, save one, to follow him in John's gospel. In other gospels, yes, but in John's gospel, it's not recorded that Jesus ever called any of them specifically saying, come, you, Peter, you come and follow me. Um, but, but in this particular case, it's sort of kind of like a given because Jesus says, I'm going to change your name. And he changes his name from listener to stone. Now we find in the Bible quite often that God changes the name of people, right? He, he changed Abram's name to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel. And all of these name changes reflected things that God desired to do with those particular people whom he was changing their name. And, and I don't think that Jesus is changing Simon's name because he saw rock-like qualities in in Peter and Simon. I, I think this is prophetic. I think he's changing his name because he says, I'm going to make you a rock. Now, Peter really isn't a rock, is he, till after the resurrection. But after the resurrection, Peter changes. And Peter becomes this prophetic rock that God says that he's going to, uh, going to be. And so he stands up for truth and strength in the days to come. Just a side note, none of the synoptic gospels tell us how Peter got his name. Only John tells us that in this book. And, and, and I say that to tell you this. This is why we read the scripture in its entirety. This is why we read the synoptic gospels and John. We, we read them because together we get a fuller picture of the story that God is painting for us of our Savior. The next disciple would be Philip. Notice in chapter 1, verse 43 and verse 44. The next day, Jesus purposed to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. So the next day, Jesus heads for Galilee. Most certainly, he is going to the town of Cana, as we'll see next week in, in, our, in our study next week. He's heading to Cana in Galilee. Now, I put a map for us. If you could put the map up there. I don't know if y'all can see that okay, but I got arrows there. But down at the bottom is, is Bethany at the top of the Dead Sea. And that's where John was baptizing. And Cana is up at the top arrow there, just above Nazareth, just a few miles from Nazareth. And that's the trek that they make. It's about 50 miles. It's uh, about a two to three day journey. It could be that Jesus finds Philip and Bethany. Before they actually leave, he could have found him and said, come and follow me. It could be that when he gets to Cana, he says, you know, come and follow me. But I, I'm thinking it's down in Bethany where he finds Philip, who was from the town of Andrew and Peter, which leads me to believe most likely that, that he found Philip because Philip's hanging around Peter and Andrew. But, uh, but Philip is, is going to follow him, and Philip is the only one in, God, in John's gospel who gets an invitation from Jesus to say, you come and follow me. Now, the synoptic gospels tell us, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us that there were other men also that Jesus said, you come and follow me. But in John's gospel, it's only Philip that gets that particular call, at least annotated by John the apostle. Um, John is going to mention Philip 
12 times where none of the other gospels mention Philip at all, except in the context of here's the list of the 12 men. But John would talk about Philip several times. You remember um, when uh, Jesus has that large crowd in front of him and he says, hey, let's feed them. Here's what Philip says. He says 200 silver coins worth of bread would not be enough for them for each one to get a little there was another time when some Greeks came and wanted to see Jesus, and they went to Philip, uh, who was from Bethsaida. Most likely they knew him. And they said, sir, we, want to, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip didn't know what to do. So he went and found Andrew and said, Andrew, these guys want to see Jesus. Instead of going to Jesus himself, he went and found Andrew, and they went together. Uh, then again, John 14, 6 through 11, we find Philip again. You remember this. We talked about it recently when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me or through the Father except through me. You remember Philip's the one that said, show us God and it'll be enough for us. That was Philip. The notable New Testament scholar Leon Morris made a tongue-in-cheek comment about Philip. And he said, Philip seems to be a little out of his depth. What he meant by that is just seems like at times as we look at Philip's interchanges in John's gospel, we, we find him really maybe not really understanding who Jesus is and not really grasping, you know, the nature of Jesus. Now, eventually he would like all the rest of them, right? But early on, he seems to not, not really understand who Jesus is. But Jesus calls him and Philip follows and Philip has the distinction of being one of the 12 men who for three years is noted among the followers of Jesus on our planet. Kind of reminds you of what Paul said. You remember Paul said, uh, I think it's in the letter of, Cor uh, of Corinth, it is. But in the letter to the Corinthians, he says, think about the circumstances of your calls, brothers and sisters. This is for all of us. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were members of the upper class. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. So, you know, the Lord's just, he takes common guys like Philip who just maybe don't quite get it, but Philip had enough intuition, enough in his heart to say there's something special about the Lord Jesus and he followed Jesus. And that brings us to the last guy of the five, and that's Nathaniel. And we find Nathaniel in verse 45 to verse 51. Now, notice this. We just talked about Philip, and, and, and I wasn't trying to be too hard on Philip at all, but just to say, you know, Philip maybe wasn't, didn't quite get who Jesus was in his entirety, but notice verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
So finally, this last fifth disciple to follow Jesus at the beginning, Nathaniel. Nathaniel comes from Cana, which if you notice the map a minute ago, is really, really close to Nathaniel. I mean, he's close to Nazareth. So when Philip comes and says, we found the one that the Bible talks about, you know, in the Moses, he talked, this is the Messiah, the one that, remember, remember Moses says that a prophet's coming? Maybe Philip's alluding to, to that prophecy, right? That this is the one that Moses taught us, uh, told us about. But, but Nathaniel's response is, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And I thought it was really telling that Nazareth and Cana were like this close on the map. I mean, they're just a few miles apart. And, uh, and you know, I remember years ago I, I made the statement because I read it um, that Nazareth had a bad reputation and that's what, that's what Nathaniel meant. I discovered in my study this week that there's no historical evidence for that. That's just what pastors pass on and another pastor reads another pastor. And, but there's no historical evidence that Nazareth was a particularly bad place at all. And, you know, and, and with that in mind, you know, maybe Nathaniel's saying this. How can anything come from Nazareth? Because nowhere in the word of God does it say anything about an anointed person coming from Nazareth. Can any good prophet come from Nazareth when the word of God hasn't prophesied that or predicted that? That may, may be what uh, he means. So when Nazareth, when, when Nathaniel hears about Jesus, he comes. And, and as, they're, as they're walking towards Jesus, Jesus says to Nathaniel, he says, um, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Your Bible may say guile. Who there is no deception in this in this person. Now remember this: uh, Nathaniel comes to Jesus skeptical. He comes skeptical. He comes believing. I mean, he comes because Philip has told him to come. He comes because of Philip's testimony to come and see. But he's obviously coming skeptical. He doesn't necessarily think that Messiah can come from Nazareth for whatever reason. And yet, in just a minute meeting, meeting Jesus, he's going to pronounce that not only is he the Messiah, but he is the Son of God. He's the Son of God, he says. And, and Jesus will ask him, you know, because I, told, I saw you under the tree, you say that? So here's what happens. Jesus comes and Nathaniel's coming. He says, man, there's an Israelite who, there's no deceit in that man. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Now, let me suggest that maybe, just maybe, Nathaniel and again, this is, this is just speculation, but just speculate with me for just a moment. Maybe Nathaniel under the fig tree, which is known to be a place of great shade and a place where a lot of the Israelites would do their meditation outside in the cool. What if Nathaniel is reading about Jacob? And what if Nathaniel is saying, Lord, I don't want to be a deceiver like Jacob. I want to be a man who's truthful. And then the first thing Jesus says to him, there's a man in whom there is no deceit. There's a man who's truthful. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? How do you know that's what I desire? How do you know that's what I want? And, uh, and then Jesus says to him, hey, before Philip ever came to you under that fig tree, I saw you. And of course, Nathaniel, what's going through Nathaniel's mind is there's no way this man saw me under the fig tree. The only way he would have known, he has to have known that from some supernatural source, not, not, from, uh, not from seeing me. And, uh, and so maybe Nathaniel's jump from skepticism to faith has to do with things that we don't know. Things that were happening in Nathaniel's mind and heart under the fig tree that Jesus puts his finger on. You know that Jesus says to Nathaniel, he says, you know, you're going to see so, many, so much more 
You're going to see greater things than these. And you're going to see the, the angels coming down and ministering to the Son of God. An allusion to Jacob's vision where he saw a ladder and angels were coming back and forth from heaven to earth. Right? Y'all remember that story? We've been studying about it on Wednesday nights and on, uh, and on Sunday mornings and Sunday school. So maybe, he, maybe you know, that's where he was reading. And Jesus says, you're going to see angels ministering to the Son of God. Now... Nowhere in Scripture do we ever find that that's the case. And Nathaniel saw a vision or he saw this reality of angels coming down and ministering to Jesus. But you know what? I can't help but imagine that over the next three years, maybe Nathaniel wouldn't see it specifically, but he would see that he would see God's angels ministering to Jesus in ways um, that you and I would say that's the angels of God ministering to the Son of God. So that brings us to the end of chapter one. So what I'd like to do in, in just a few more minutes is I'd like to just give you three takeaways. I, I struggled with how do I present this text to you this morning. I wanted to teach it to you, but I also wanna, I wanna give you some things. I wanna give myself some things. I wanna give you some things that are takeaways. How, what can we apply from this narrative of Jesus calling these five men, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel? Here's my first takeaway. Following Jesus means having to leave behind what we know, what's often good, what's familiar, to go where Jesus leads us. As I'm meditating on the text, it hits me. On the day that John the baptizer said to John and to Andrew, behold the Lamb of God, and he's obviously encouraging them to follow Jesus. When John and Andrew leave, they're leaving behind everything they know. They're leaving behind the one that they've been following. They're leaving behind the prophet John to follow one that they do not know other than by the testimony of John the baptizer that he's greater than me and I am unworthy to even be his lowest of servants. And so, but they don't know Jesus at all. They don't know Jesus at all. When you and I decide to follow Jesus, can I tell you that you're going to have to, at times, leave things that are comfortable for you. You're going to have to, Jesus is calling you to follow him. And that may mean leaving the comfort, the comforts of what you know and what's familiar to you to follow him to a place that will be better because you'll be in the center of his will, but will not necessarily be easy and will not necessarily be what you know. Now, notice Jesus said, come and see. And so when they said, where are you staying? He said, come and see. In other words, leave John and come and follow and come and follow me. When we begin to follow Jesus, if some of you are here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're considering following Jesus, let me tell you some things. It's going to mean leaving a life of self-direction behind. It means you don't get to call the shots anymore because you've just submitted yourself to a different lead. You said, I'm not going to be the king over my own heart anymore. I'm going to let Jesus be king over my life. And that means you quit calling your own shots. And it often means leaving a bunch of really yucky messes behind that we've created, right? So there can be something good in following Jesus. You get to leave a bunch of messes behind that you've created because he's going to help you fix those. So many people say, God, why did you do this to me when it's not God who did it to you, it's you who did it to you. Well, yeah, we're too, we're too whatever to admit it. Hey, God didn't do this to me. I did it to myself. But following Jesus, you know, it means not necessarily leaving just the messes. It means leaving good stuff. 
It means leaving the familiar to go to the unfamiliar and maybe what's scary. You know, I, I think of Brother John who, who has felt called and is planning to go to the mission fields of the world, you know? So when John leaves us, he'll leave what's familiar. He'll, he'll leave family. He'll, he'll leave me and you. And he'll go someplace following Jesus that's not what he knows. Let me tell you, folks, listen, following Jesus means being willing to do like, like Andrew and John and go wherever Jesus leads us to go, even if it means being uncomfortable. Here's my second takeaway. Following Jesus means he has every intention of changing you. So he meets Peter, and the very first thing he says to Peter is, Peter, your name is Simon, but I'm changing it to Peter. And, and again, I, I want to reiterate, I don't think he's saying to Peter, I'm going to change your name because this is what I see in you, these qualities of rock-like faith. No, he's saying this is who I'm going to make you to be. Can I tell you that Jesus has a name change for every one of us? Did you know that? In the book of Revelation, uh, the last book of the Bible, John the Apostle writing, Jesus speaking, Jesus says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I mean, I, I don't know what exactly that means, but Jesus has a new name for us. Because Jesus' intention is always to change us and to make us like, like himself. That's his goal. You ever heard this well-worn statement, but yet so true? God loves you just the way you are, but loves you too much to leave you just like that, right? And that's the truth. God, God is in the process of changing us. If any man or woman be in Christ, he is a... New creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come, right? I'm a new person. I've been given a new heart. I, I, I have been born again. I am new. Okay, he doesn't leave me like he finds me. He changes me. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap life from the Spirit. You know, uh, the theological term for this is sanctification. And sanctification is truly synergistic. And what I mean by that is that, that sanctification is the work of God, but it's also your work. It is also what you do, your heart being changed. For instance, it, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, your responsibility, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. Sanctification is not passive. You don't, you don't follow, you won't change. Do you hear me? You don't follow Jesus, you won't change. So, so there's this thing. But listen, your following doesn't change you. Okay? God changes you by his spirit. God is the one who is at work in you as you yield yourself to him. So sanctification is the work of God, but it's also us following Jesus, trusting Jesus enough to follow him. And, and, and I, I still struggle, I still struggle with the idea that we can have faith without following. And I realize that's something we all disagree on. We're not, Christians across the ages and across the, the continent, across the world, we, we, we don't all see that the same. Some say you can be a faith, filled with faith and not follow Jesus one day of your life. 
I, you know, I tend to fall in the camp that says faith changes you and, and, and you, you will follow. My point, my takeaway from this is that Jesus has every intention of changing you. He wants to change you. He wants you to submit to him. Are you following? I mean, I don't mean are you following what I'm saying. I mean, are you following Jesus, right? That's what I really mean. Or are you just simply a church attender? Or maybe just a Sunday sitter? Or a Christian pretender? The last takeaway that I have is following Jesus is simply not something we keep to ourselves. Now, here's five men. And, uh, and I realize it's different for, for us than it is for Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel because they got to follow the physical Jesus. I mean, they got to walk with the physical Jesus. They got to touch him. They got to talk to him. They got to travel with him. It's different for us. God, Jesus, when he left, he said, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. It's better. It's better that he comes. And I don't know about you, but I find that hard. How is it better that, that Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit? Well, it's better because the Holy Spirit's always with Diana, and he's always with me, and he's always with Beverly, and he's always with Jill. He doesn't leave us. He's always there. So Jesus says the Spirit is better because he can be with each one of you. Where right now, I've got the limitations of physicality, and I can only be here but the Spirit can be in all of your lives. In that sense, it's better. But I tell you what, we exist in the material world, and uh, in some ways, it's harder, too, to walk by the Spirit than it is to walk following Jesus personally, you know, where, where he speaks to us, and he says, he speaks to us audibly where we hear his voice, and he says, do this or do that. But here's what I want you to notice. They just began to follow Jesus, and Andrew went to family. He went and got Peter, and he said, Peter, I found him. He went to his brother. And then there's Philip. He went to his friend. He went to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, I found him. We found him. Come and see. In each case, the men brought others to Jesus. Okay, and, and, he, and here's, here, note this. They didn't necessarily convince them. They didn't even try to convince them. What they said is, you come and let Jesus convince you. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. And can I tell you, that's what we need to do. We need to... We need to share our own stories, but we need to let God do the convincing. Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Come and see. Let us, let us, uh, Tom tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, how do I do that? How do I invite folks to come and experience the Lord? Well, I got, I got two suggestions for you that, that I seek to apply in my life. And I, I really, well, actually, I, I, I seek to talk too, so you can do that as well. But if, you're, if you don't feel like you can, you can tell your story. Every, if, you've got, if you're a follower, you've got a story, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've got, to st you've got a story. If you don't have a story, then see me, because you need to have a story. How, how did you begin to follow Jesus? Why are you following Jesus? What does it look like that you're following Jesus? you got your own story, so tell your story. But, but here, here's how I think we can invite people to experience Jesus on their own. Invite them, number one, invite them to read the Gospels. Invite them to read about Jesus themselves, to read the word of God that Jesus has given us so they can touch and listen and, and they can feel Jesus as they read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I have, I have a... 
a new friend. And when I said goodbye to her, I sat down with her and I gave her my Bible. And I said, I want you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I, I told her to start with Matthew and then to go to John because, you know, I want her to meet Jesus. And she'll probably listen to this, by the way. But I want her to meet Jesus. I want Jesus to convince her. And he will. I mean, he'll speak for himself. Yes, I'm his witness. But just like, just like Andrew said to Peter, come and see for yourself. Just like Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see for yourself. Listen, folks, listen. Just invite people to come and see for themselves. If they're at all interested, tell them to go to their Bibles and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and let them experience Jesus for themselves. That's number one. Number two is invite people to come and experience the tangible body of Christ, the temple of God, that's us right now. Invite them to come and experience Jesus among us. Invite them to come and see Jesus in our midst because you know when we're here like this, we are his body. We are his temple. Invite people to come and experience Jesus as we've come to know. Invite them to experience Jesus in our midst. You know, in, in, in the letter to Corinth, Paul would say in the, in the 14th chapter, he would say that invite the, the people that don't know Jesus yet, invite them to come. And he says, and I quote, that they might fall down on their faces and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among us. And so there is a sense in which hopefully people, as we worship, as we love each other, as we love Jesus, as we just live out our Christian life, people are going to say, wow, God is a part of them. And, and those people will come to believe and follow Jesus even as we have. You can't invite people to touch Jesus tan tangibly. You know, we, we can't do like, like Andrew did to his brother, said, come and meet him, hear, his, hear him speak personally and, and with his own voice. But, but we can invite people to hear Jesus speak through us, his people. I'm done. Here's a closing story. In the late 1800s and the early 1900s, Alexander White preached at a, at a large church in Edinburgh. And during that time, a salesman by the name of Rigby would travel to Edinburgh regularly to hear him preach. And he would often invite other businessmen to go with him to the services. On one Sunday morning, he asked a fellow traveler to go to church with him. Reluctantly, the man said, uh, yeah, I'll go. And when he heard White's message, he was so impressed that he returned with Rigby on the evening service. The man came forward at the end of that service and began to follow Jesus. The next morning, as Rigby walked by the home of uh, Mr. White, the pastor or the preacher, he felt impressed to stop in and tell him how his message had affected the other man's life. When, when White learned that his caller's name was Rigby, he explained, you're the man I've wanted to meet for years. And he went to his study and returned with this bundle of letters. And Alexander White read to Rigby some excerpts, all telling of how their lives had been changed. And they were all men that Rigby had brought with him to hear Pastor White preach. These men believed in Christ because of the word and invitation of Rigby. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't speak ourselves. You should speak yourself. But we can invite people to know our Savior by encouraging them to read the Bible for themselves. Or we can encourage them to come and be with us as God's people meet together. Let's bow our heads. I don't know how God may have spoken to you this morning, but, you know, I had three takeaways. 
maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus, then, then I really want to just tell you that uh, following Jesus will mean a change. It'll mean you change leadership guards in your heart. You, you go from being the leader to saying, Jesus, you lead me. I'm, I'm here to follow you. So, so recognize that following Jesus will mean change. And for those of you who already follow Jesus, would you just reiterate in your heart, Lord, wherever you lead me, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, I, I'm willing to change. And I realize that's a statement that's way above us so often because we're really not willing to change sometimes when God calls us to. But... But nonetheless, I want to give you an opportunity to, to say to the Lord, Lord, I, I'm willing to follow you wherever. Whatever the change, whatever the difference, I'm, I'm willing to follow you. So take a moment just to talk to God about that. The second takeaway is that uh, uh, Jesus wants to change you. He wants to give you a new name. He, he wants to change you to be more like him, and he's going to be doing that. From the moment you begin to follow him, Jesus begins to change you. He begins to create in you grace and humility and kindness and, and, and holiness, all the things that marked Jesus. Again, you want to know what God's like? Go to the New Testament, read about Jesus. That's what God's like. And he'll begin to change you. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've been fighting those changes and you don't want to change. Well, let's let today be the day where you say, Lord, change me. And the final takeaway was that we cannot keep Jesus to ourselves. I mean, it's just, you know, we just can't. We're not supposed to anyway. I guess we can, you know. But the early followers of Jesus did not. And because they did not, you are here today because you believe. How can we not do the same as they Nick, Nick Ripken quotes um, a persecuted uh, brother in, uh, in Ukraine or Russia, one or the other. And the, the brother challenged Nick, and, and I end with this. He said, what we have not given up in persecution, i.e. the responsibility to invite people to Jesus and tell people about Jesus, we have not given up in, in persecution. You guys, please don't give it up in freedom. Father, help us this morning to um, submit ourselves to you, to your spirit, that you might change us, that you might make us different. Lord, I pray that we would hold things in our hands only lightly so that you are more than able to take them and we willingly give anything that you want from us. Um, we're willing to follow you wherever, whatever that means, however different or difficult that might be. We, we want to follow you. And Lord, I pray that we would be like Andrew and Philip and, and Simon Peter, Nathaniel and John, and that we might be willing to, to just encourage people to know you. Tell them about what we know. Invite them to come and see that they too might come to know you as we have come to know you. So thanks for, thanks for working in our hearts. Thanks for all that you've done for us. And we, we worship you. We worship you through your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.